Hey everyone, great to be here with you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And I have an ad, it's actually an ad for myself. Uh, it is to let you know that my new book is out. It's called Rest, Refocus, Recharge, A Guide for Optimizing Your Life, published by Harper Collins. Very, very excited about this. Took a long time to write and research and pull together. Um, it was super challenging, but I'm really happy with how where we landed on it. Basically, this is all came coming out of a place where when we did the ripple effect, it was great, but everyone would speak to me afterwards and be like, these ideas are awesome, but I'm just so busy, I don't have time. So what I wanted to do was to provide everyone with ideas for how to integrate these ideas about health, well-being, high performance into your life in a very, very easy, very, very um, tactical way that you can actually integrate. So for example, taking a couple of breaths to relax or to calm down if you're stressed, or what are some super healthy snacks that you can use in the middle of the day that are easy, cheap, and fast to make, or how do you take a great vacation uh, and completely disconnect? And then we grounded all of that in the latest science around neurophysiology and how the brain works to optimize creativity, learning, problem solving, and concentration. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're psyched to hear, learn more and to explore those ideas, I would be infinitely grateful if you wanted to pick up a copy of the book. It's available at Amazon in Canada and the States. Just search Greg Wells and Rest, Refocus, Recharge, and you'll find it. It's also on Indigo um, and all of the bookstores in Canada if you want to check that out. Uh, Neil Pasricha, the number one best-selling author of You Are Awesome, described it as a prescription for space in a world of noise. So really pleased to um, have had that little support moment from from Neil and he's been on the show if you want to check him out. So thanks for considering it. Really appreciate it. I'm really proud of the book. I know it's going to be super helpful for you. So if you want to pick up a copy, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's great to have you with me on the show. Today, we are going to have a conversation with Paul Check. Now, this interview originally appeared on my Be Better podcast a couple of years ago, but so many people have been emailing me and said, what happened to the Check interview? Uh, and so I decided to repost it because it was an incredible conversation. I got about three questions in. Uh, Paul talked for about an hour and a half. We do a very, very deep dive into health, well-being, uh, and actually drift into spirituality as well, which is kind of cool uh, and amazing given the journey that Paul has been on. Paul Check's a world-renowned expert in the fields of corrective and high-performance exercise kinesiology, stress management, and holistic wellness. For over 30 years, Paul's unique integrated approach to treatment and education has changed the lives of many of his clients, his students, and their clients because he coaches coaches. And by treating the body as a whole system and finding the root cause of a problem, Paul has been successful where traditional approaches have previously failed. He is the founder of the Czech Corrective Holistic Exercise Kinesiology Institute based in California and the Success Mastery Coaching Program. He's a prolific author of books, articles, and blog posts. He has been a presenter and consultant for organizations such as the Chicago Bulls, Australia's Canberra Raiders, and the U.S. Air Force Academy. He's been a presenter at the European PGA. He's spoken at events like CanFit Pro, 
uh, and won the most controversial speaker at CanFit Pro in 2004. Uh, he's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Men's Health, Glamour Magazine, and his book, The Golf Biomechanics Ma Manual, has been featured on the Golf Channel and many other channels as well. He's an author of over 11 books, and actually not over 11 books, he's the author and co-author of 11 books, and has been an inventor and has created a number of certifications, which several of my friends have taken who are trainers, and they say that he is absolutely one of the best people to learn from, which is what we get to do for the next hour and a half. So please enjoy this incredibly in-depth conversation with health and fitness and wellness expert, Paul Check. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Can you take me back to the very, very beginning? I'd love to know a little bit more about your, like, how did you get into, in, into this field? How'd you get into health and fitness and, and where did all this start from? Well, um, my mother's a yogi and um, she's made yoga and the teachings of self-realization fellowship under Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, kind of the way our whole family was raised. She became a yogi at 12. And so our whole family life was oriented around the principles of yoga and the teachings of Yogananda. And uh, my parents owned a 140-acre sheep farm on Vancouver Island at, at the time. So everything that we ate, we grew, or was animals that we raised. Um, I was always very athletic and involved in you know pretty much every sport that I could play. But when I was young, I started boxing at 12 and played hockey and I raced motocross, um, played football. Uh, you know, I, I was pretty much into everything, martial arts, taekwondo, kickboxing. Um, so athletic training was a real important part of my own development. And one of the ways that I just channeled a lot of my life stresses into something productive. And uh, in my early years, just questing for high performance, uh, one of the first things that I noticed is that most of the people that I was around didn't eat anything like my parents had taught us to eat. And we're eating a lot of processed food and having various health challenges all the time. But it wasn't until I became the trainer of the United States Army boxing team in January 1984 uh, when the team, uh, I was actually asked to represent the United States Army in triathlon because I had done very well in the previous year's triathlon. And uh, so I started training for triathlon while I was fighting on the Army boxing team. I, I was actually a member of the Army boxing team at the time. And the team, uh, my company commander said to me, if you don't want to uh, do boxing so you can train full time for the triathlon, I'd love to support you in that because I'm betting a lot of money on you to win. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to the boxing team and I'd reached a point in my fighting career where I knew that turning professional was probably not a good idea just because even though 12 sounds young to start boxing, uh, you know, there was guys on the boxing team, many of them that by the time they were 19 and 20 at over 300 fights. So it's kind of like trying to dance or ski or swim against someone who began at three, you know, 
the early developmental years are so critical and my fighting style was so aggressive that even when I won, I often got beat up, you know, and I just sort of made the decision that I needed to put my energies elsewhere for my own safety and security. I mean, I was a good fighter, but I just was too uh, aggressive and didn't have that kind of natural uh, slip and slide skill. I was more willing to engage. So the, the, when I told the team coaches that I was going to leave and train full-time for triathlon, they immediately offered me the position to stay as the trainer and take over nutrition, conditioning, athlete management. And then I implemented a program of massage therapy. I studied massage therapy on my own and, and became the massage therapist for all the fighters. I designed all their nutrition programs. And I'd been studying nutrition. Actually, the first book I ever read cover to cover in my life was when I finished my first book, believe it or not, at age 21. I was uh, on my way home from a running race for the uh, United States Army. I was representing the Army on a running team at the Pentagon. And uh, I stood up and yelled, yoo-hoo, in the bus. And everyone looked at me like, what's going on, man? The race is over. And I said, I just finished my first book. And they were all laughing at me. And they go, what is it? And it was Nutrition, A Holistic Approach by Rudolph Valentine. And it was the first book that actually captivated my attention enough to get me to read the whole thing. And I found the principles um, practical and used them. And though I wasn't really oriented toward vegetarianism at the time, because my mother as a yogi had brought me into vegetarianism when I was 13, and I ended up feeling pretty lousy after six months. And she took me to a naturopathic physician who said that I was anemic and I needed to eat meat. And within one meal of eating meat, I felt noticeably better and healed up right away. But the general principles of holistic nutrition, I found to be very, very in line with what my mother practiced, what my parents practiced, and what seemed to give me a lot more energy. The the army boxing team athletes and coaches were always just dumbfounded how I could actually do all the training with the boxing team, which is four to six hours a day, fight as a fighter and still go in and swim a mile or more a day, bike 20 to 60 miles a day and do the extra running and be competitive as a triathlete while fighting on the boxing team. Cause usually the boxing training alone was enough to just wipe the guys out. So when they saw that I was about to leave, they gave me this opportunity and the team physician was an osteopathic physician. So I got to spend the next two years working with an osteopath, learning how to take care of acute athletic injuries and kind of pick up as much as I could from an osteopath while I studied intensively on everything I could about sports medicine, sports conditioning, nutrition and all the related issues. And I had phenomenal experiences and phenomenal results with the boxing team. And that led me to basically realizing that when I left the army, I wanted to pursue this approach that I developed by mixing resistance training with nutrition, with general athletic conditioning, with, um, I had a, a, an interest in posture, so I did a tremendous amount of study on posture and all the things related to it. 
And so I moved to San Diego, California, which was the triathlon training mecca of the world when I, in 1986 when I got out of the Army and studied sports massage therapy, then got my license as a holistic health practitioner, opened my practice, and it just went crazy. It just boomed, and I specialized in working with people that were medical failures. Uh, I went to doctors and therapists all over the place and started giving lectures and writing articles. And really, I built my business by offering doctors and therapists to send me the people that they weren't getting any results with. And I had such a high success rate with many famous elite athletes, uh, you know, people that were Olympic athletes or professional athletes or team sports athletes, that the word just got around and it just grew. And I just continued to study everything that I thought I needed to study in order to understand what it is that causes people to have the kinds of challenges that they do. And that led me into a very deep study of pretty much every aspect of the body, the emotions, the mind, spiritual development, consciousness. Being raised on a farm, I had a good grounding in farming, but I did study uh, soil science and agronomy and the history of farming and farming, the science of farming, so I could understand the soil and how the soil works. And also so I could understand nutrition at its actual roots, because I've always felt if you don't understand the soil, you can really never truly understand nutrition. So I coupled my soil science with a study of holistic nutrition and the work of Weston Price and many other pioneers in nutrition, such as Dr. Jensen and Dr. Goodhart and Royal Lee and a long, long list of people like that. And uh, kind of just grew myself in a, every direction and traveled the world seeking out the best doctors and therapists who had specific skills that I thought were necessary because I kept running into these various problems in my clinical practice. And uh, in that process, in 1988, the owner of the largest physical therapy clinic in San Diego with 22 physical therapists, athletic trainers, and a surgical center with 13 orthopedic and neurosurgeons um, hired me, asked me if I would come work for them. Actually, what happened is the owner had had four knee surgeries, and the surgeon told her he didn't think she'd be able to play golf or tennis anymore because her knee kept freezing up, and he was afraid if he had to manipulate it again, she may not even be able to function. And none of the therapists were getting any results with her at all. But one of the therapists there, I had rehabilitated from a bilateral Achilles tendon problem. And he was uh, a Nike-sponsored marathon runner. And he said to the owner, Kate Grace, he said, well, I know a guy you should see before you let him put you under anesthesia and manipulate your knee again. And I was able to get eight degrees more range of motion on my first visit than they'd gotten in three months. So a long story short, I completely rehabilitated her knee. And she asked me to come work in the physical therapy clinic. And um, so that gave me four years where I worked with some very skilled physical therapists and got a lot of exposure to their mindset. Prior to that, I'd been working for a chiropractor that specialized in sports injuries for almost two years. So I got a good tour of the chiropractic concepts. And then uh, a partner of mine, who he was a physical therapist specializing in, in the shoulder and the knee my specialty by then was the spine, and we coupled together and opened our own physical therapy clinic, which we had for about three and a half years before we sold just because the insurance companies were 
making it impossible for us to really help people. And then I started the Czech Institute in 95. So that's kind of a quick summary. Sorry to be so long winded, but uh, that's where, you know, that from from 95 on, I've just continued to practice and to grow and to study and share the things that I learned. I began lecturing professionally in 1988, traveling around the United States, teaching courses on the basic principles I developed, um, including things like neuromuscular therapy and stuff like that. And now I've got seven years of education that that is multidisciplinary that people can study, whether it be the holistic lifestyle coach approach or the Czech practitioner approach, which is specializing in corrective and high-performance exercise, or my PPS Success Mastery Program, which is issues of the challenges of life and how to overcome them. And my most recent development is my Czech Four Quadrant Coaching Mastery Program, which is by far the deepest program I've ever developed, but it really looks into the very depths of the human psyche and archetypes, myth, mythology, counter-myth, and really what drives us as human beings so that my students can find the, the really the root challenges that lead people to the beliefs and behaviors that often create binding or loss of freedom in their life and, and health challenges and you know chronic problems such as back pain or neck pain that won't go away and things like that. So it's been 32 years now and I'm still you know deep into it and still uh, inspired to keep growing every day. Unbelievable. Like there's a, a word that I've discovered recently called it's a polymath, which basically means you're an expert at everything. And I think you certainly fit into that. I've, I could, I've, I've already made a page of notes, which is scary. And I'd love to just take a step back and go to the farming, healthy eating, organic, holistic nutrition link and start at the soil and get right through to healthy food. Can you take us through your thinking on that? Yeah, well, you know, the, the the key thing is that, first of all, you know, our culture in particularly, but you say any westernized or modern culture, has this disease, which would be called scientific materialism, in which life, you know, what we call life is subjective, right? Just like love. But if the scientific materialist culture has programmed people to think that if you can't weigh or measure it, it doesn't exist. And the side effect of that is that the soil is referred to as dirt, and they think that it's something completely dead. It's just matter, you know, and, and you can do whatever you want on it. You can dump toxins into it. And they have very little, this other side effect is the lack of spiritual um, awareness in that culture and that mindset leaves things like plants and anything in nature as an object that we can control or use for whatever purposes we want. But there's very little awareness of the interconnectedness of this web of life. And there's almost no appreciation for the fact that the soil is a living being. In Steiner's philosophy, that the topsoil is the stomach of the planet. And so when you look at some some of the you know really important scientific understandings of the soil, you find amazing things like there's something like six to ten billion microorganisms in a half a teaspoon of soil. 
And then you look, for example, if you look at the book Science in Agriculture by Arden Anderson, which is a very good book, um, it shows you, for example, that the humus of the soil, which is the organic matter, is what feeds the microorganisms, but that the microorganisms, and Russian research showed this, the microorganisms are very, very intelligent, and they're at work actually creating what's called a crumb structure in the soil so that the topsoil actually has been processed so that it has a unique structure. And that structure turns out to be ideal for capturing the key rays of energy, whether it be rays of sunlight, rays of moonlight, or other frequencies that we're you know, unaware of but are real because there's a, long, a wide spectrum of cosmic energy that's influencing the planet. And they actually capture that energy and store it in the soil so that it can be used by the plants to grow. And then you look, for example, that 85% of all edible plants or all plants, period, are classified as mycorrhizaformers, which means they have a functional relationship with fungi in the soil. And the fungi actually excrete extremely powerful acids that dissolve rock, stone, into liquid minerals, and the mycorrhiza send filaments up the nerve roots, kind of like a catheter going into a penis, so to speak. And they deliver these liquid minerals to the plants, and in trade, they get to drink the plant sap, which is high in carbohydrate or sugars, which they love. And so not only that, if, if you look at The Living Soil, the book titled The Living Soil by Lady Eve Balfour, probably the one most responsible for what we know of as the whole organic movement today. That book was published in 42. She shows very good images of, even back then they had recognized that the soil mycorrhiza will actually create a defensive network around all the plants they support. And if parasites try to attack the plant, they will actually entangle the parasite, send their filaments inside the parasite, eat it from the inside out and feed it to the plant to protect the plant and feed the plant. So not only is that mind-bogglingly complex, but it brings up another key issue that a lot of people don't like, and that is plants are carnivorous. Those plants use the, the soil mycorrhiza, the fungi, to capture and eat animals. And so all the vegetarians have a very hard time when I explain to them, look, you're still eating meat. You're just eating meat that's been digested by a plant and put into a plant's body. And you know, they say, oh, that's not meat. I say, well, I'll give you an analogy. Do you like dogs? Yes. What kind of dog do you have? A German Shepherd. Okay, if you shrunk your German Shepherd down till it was so small you couldn't see it, and you stepped on it and killed it, would you still be sad that you'd lost your dog? Well, everybody says yes. I said, well, just because the little dogs in the soil are so small you can't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. And if the plants are eating those little dogs, they're meat eaters. And then if you look at Sir Albert Howard's studies, which are extensive, and Sir Albert Howard's still considered by many to be the kind of wisest, most prominent agriculturalist that ever lived, he did extensive studies on compost and he did amazing research where he would grow plants with no compost. And then he would grow plants with compost made of just organic matter, 
Then he had another batch where he just took things like hair and uh, dropped some blood, a little bit of blood in the compost from animal blood. And then he did a fourth batch where he just took table scraps, whatever was on the table, bones, everything, and composted all that. And then in carefully controlled environments, he raised the same genus of plant. And then he composted the soil. I mean, you know, harvested, prepared the soil with these different levels of compost. He monitored the health and vitality of each of these plants. And then he specifically exposed each of these uh, plant groups to parasites that were known specifically to attack that kind of plant. And lo and behold, the immune systems and the capacity to resist infection and disease was the least in the, shall we call it, vegetarian compost plants, but the ones that had the table scraps and were whatever was on the table, in other words, the widest variety of nutrients in the compost had almost no crop loss at all to parasites. In fact, it was only about 3%, which is as good as the best organic farmers could ever get and is better than chemical farming by far. So he showed that the soil itself and the plants have to have adequate amounts of variety and that um, you, you, know, you can't even raise healthy vegetarian plants is what I'm saying. Um, you know, it's so it's it's fairly complex. Now, there's more to it. I just don't know how deep you want me to go. One of the things I'd share real quickly is that if you study the electromagnetics of the soil and you look at a book like um, Enlivened Rock Powders by Harvey Lyle, you can see that there is this polarity. And even William Tiller talks about this. Um, you have different types of minerals. You have um you have minerals that attract um, photons that have a positive charge, which are called paramagnetic. And then you have minerals in stones that are called dimagnetic, and they attract photons with a negative charge. And, and Philip Callahan, who wrote a number of books, who was a famous scientist, who was the first one to determine how this soil function worked and what paramagnetism was. And he actually went to Egyptian temples and showed that he could levitate objects and all sorts of stuff by using paramagnetic energies. And, the, and he also found that every single healing site, such as Egyptian temples and healing sites all over the world, he measured the paramagnetic levels in, in farms and all over the world, including along the Nile in Egypt, where they wrote about it in the Bible and developed a, a paramagnetic testing device, which I own, and showed that the higher the paramagnetic energy, the more life force energy there was in the soil. And he showed that the Egyptians the and people of all cultures and even the Irish monks that built the round towers had to have had a knowledge of paramagnetic and diamagnetic forces because when he analyzed the stones in these structures, he proved that they must have walked at least 50 miles by doing geological studies. He was able to prove they must, in many cases, they had to have walked 50 miles to find the exact stones that had high amounts of paramagnetic energy to build these things out of. So to kind of bring this to a head, to make it a little more comprehensive and clear, water and the flesh of your body and the bodies of plants and trees are largely diamagnetic, which means they have an affinity to the south pole of a magnet. But 
paramagnetic is got an affinity to the north pole of a magnet. And so I might have that reversed. I'm brain farting there. But uh, what you get in essence is that the paramagnetic energies draw in the opposite polarity that is typically present in normal dirt or soil without these paramagnetic energies and that there has to be a balance of diamagnetic and paramagnetic energies because the soil actually functions like a um, when the sun hits the soil it lights it up and turns it on just like turning on an electromagnetic circuit and that creates a magnetic field and the magnetic field from basic physics the electrical field runs perpendicular to the magnetic field. If you look at images or studies of the Earth's magnetic field, it wraps itself around the globe, but the electrical field runs perpendicular. So when a tree is growing toward the sun or a plant is growing up out of the ground, it's actually following the electrical field, which runs perpendicular to the magnetic field, which wraps itself around the Earth. So the balance of diamagnetic and paramagnetic energies, which is really what soil testing, part of what soil testing is all about, is identifying these mineral imbalances so you can maintain this um, balance, which would be not much different than checking to see if a person has adequate amounts of electrolytes in their body, because if you run out of electrolytes, you can't produce energy, so you, you can collapse. And when you see this, for example, in triathlons on hot days, where people are depleted of electrolytes and they, they start to spasm and just they even go unconscious. I've seen it many times in triathlons. So the diamagnetic paramagnetic relationships are very, very important. And then the plants that are grown in the soil with optimal diamagnetic paramagnetic relationships um, are healthier, stronger, produce a lot more nutrition because the soil's balanced. The microorganisms have what they need to collect the energy to structure the soil. The soil uh, creatures are healthy and alive and they're doing their work to grow the plants. And the plants are working synergistically with them, the sun, the moon. And this produces a web, a cosmic web, so that really you, you come to realize that the forces of the moon, the forces of the sun, and even the forces of the galaxy uh, or universe are all one very, very complex, highly interconnected web. Um, and it just popped in my head. You might want to know there's a book called Paramagnetism by Philip Callahan. Wow. Now, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty, uh, the reason why I'm just sort of taking all of this in right now is I've had a few really cool experiences in my life. I was able to go and spend some time in Egypt climbed the pyramids and was sitting at the top of one of the pyramids in Egypt as the sun came up over uh, the Sahara Desert, you know, looking down upon the Sphinx that was staring off into the distance as the sun came up. And that was a incredibly powerful moment. And similarly, I was at Machu Picchu in, in Peru as the sun came up sitting on this huge 20-ton rock. And that was an incredibly powerful experience. There's these very special places around the world that seem to have a unique power or or make you feel different and uh to hear it expressed the way that you're expressing it is something i've certainly never heard before but but pretty interesting and and somewhat consistent with the experiences that i've had in india in peru in 
in Egypt. Uh, I haven't yet been to places in uh, Southeast Asia that I hear are the same, but it's it's pretty fascinating uh, hearing hearing your take on that particular um, effect of of these locations around the world and how it's all all interconnected. Yeah, there's more I want to share with you real quick before I forget because I think it's really important and it ties it in. Um, one is I do have a YouTube video going into the basic uh, principles of the soil. And then I have um, another series that may still be on YouTube, but it's also a DVD called Nutrition, the Dirt Facts, where I go through this in great detail with slides and show you how it works. And it really shocks a lot of people when they see how the, how in, incredibly complex and powerful and intelligent the soil is. But a couple of things I wanted to share before I forgot is one Philip Callahan measured the paramagnetism in all these sites, and he found, if I remember right, the highest potency at a healing site was 2,400 on his scale. The highest paramagnetic substance there is, interestingly, is oxygen. And if you look at the fact that all spiritual practices are centered around breathing at some level, and... Then you look at people like Stanislav Grof and holotrophic breathing, various types of yogic breathing, the importance of breathing for centering and, and calming the mind and using the mind effectively or for meditation or for concentration and focus or for athletic ability. But the paramagnetic reading on oxygen is about 4,000. So that sort of sets the ceiling of paramagnetism. And then interestingly, so I'll, I'll kind of tie this together for you here. Um, along the Nile, the paramagnetic readings were regularly between 650 and 1,000. For a farm to be effective as an organic farm, it needs at least 300. Most of the organic farms, Callahan tests, if I remember right, were between 300 and 650. Uh, at the healing sites in places like some of the pyramids, he got readings as high as 2,400. And now this paramagnetic meter is is really measuring the electrical potentials and determining how much of it is paramagnetic versus diamagnetic, which again has to do with the affinity to the north or south pole of a magnet. And Callahan was the first person to show that the, the sun had so much energy it could actually split photons into what are called monopoles, which prior to that science didn't even know was possible. In other words, they did not think you could break a photon into two separate charges because that would be the equivalent of splitting a magnet and somehow making a North Pole only or a South Pole only. But he showed particularly during sunflower activities is when this was happening quite a bit and then he developed the technology to measure it and prove it. So he talks about how in the king's chamber, or the, the pharaoh's chamber of the pyramids that the not only were the pyramids aligned with stars but through breathing exercises you can highly charge your body with paramagnetic energy. And because the pyramids are made of stone that's highly paramagnetic, when a person reaches enough paramagnetic charge, you get the effect of, I think it's, I'm, I think paramagnetic is South Pole. It's been a long time since I thought about this stuff, but because I've been studying this for many, many years, you know, I've been at this a long time. But anyhow, the point is, is that two equal uh, poles cause cause you to repel. So if you put north magnet north north pole to north pole, you get a repelling, which produces levitation. So he's actually showing how yogis and people that charge themselves effectively with oxygen 
if they're in an environment that's already highly paramagnetic, like a pyramid, will literally start to levitate. And he actually shows pictures of him levitating objects that are paramagnetic objects inside of temples in his book. I think it's My Search for God that has that those pictures in it by Callahan. So this is... Uh, then he then he tested organic farms, and as I said, but he tested commercial farms. He found the average commercial farm was like, uh, let me guess, let me remember here. It was between zero and 100 on the paramagnetic scale, which is, you know, so if you think of that as instead of the soil, think of it as a battery. If you don't have enough charge between positive and negative, there's no power in the battery. The battery just goes flat. So he showed that the soils of commercial farms worldwide were actually almost completely dead. And the reason they have to use so many chemicals to raise the plants is because the plants have no nutrition and they have no life force in them. So they're basically just like sick people that have to be drugged and medicated all the time to keep them from experiencing their misery and stop all the bug collectors from eating them meaning the parasites from eating them. And so his work showed that, that, well, it showed a lot of things, but what it showed me as a holistic health practitioner and a people person that deals with people's injuries all the time and world-class athletes is that you cannot possibly feed yourself adequately to be healthy by eating anything raised on commercial farms, because not only do you have the lack of nutrition from poor farming techniques, you got all the chemicals added to it, which is a complete disaster. But the kind of key point I wanted to loop back to is, is when you understand Philip Callahan's work on paramagnetism, and you understand that oxygen is the most highly paramagnetic thing, then the whole concept of breathing and breathing practices becomes much, much more central in understanding, shall we say, the life force potential of the body, the energetics of the body, and the fact that oxygen or air, as we breathe it, carries prana, which is life force energy. It's a subtle energy. It's been scientifically validated. It's a very, very high energetic charge. It's so powerful, it'll move right through physical objects like nothing. And I show my students how to test that all the time. It blows their mind. So the, you know, there's just a, a lot of things that are important to understand, and, and this is what I mean. If you don't understand the soil, then what you do is you get a lot of people with degrees as dietitians or nutritionists or reading books on nutrition who actually are not doing anything different than allopathic medicine. You say, oh, I've got this itch or these pimples or this cognitive disorder, and they open a book and they look up what vitamins or supplements to use. But unless those are certified organic supplements, those are concentrates of, of processed food. So you're concentrating toxins, you're concentrating garbage, which just gives you concentrated garbage, and all that money is going into the destruction of the soil and, and continuing the whole food processing industry. And it gets even deeper. If you study Royal Lee's work, he shows you that vitamins do not function in isolation in nature anywhere or in a human body or in a human cell. They work in vitamin complexes. The analogy he gave is that a vitamin complex is like a watch. All the parts work together. And if you take any one part out of that system, the entire watch stops working. So in a vitamin complex, Royal Lee's teachings show there are fats, amino acids or proteins, carbohydrates, enzymes, minerals, 
trace animal mineral trace minerals and micronutrition, phenolics, terpenes, alkaloids, and related substances, and they work like an integrated complex. And that if you eat isolated vitamins, once your body brings that stuff in, it actually has to scavenge the raw materials from other parts of your body in order to activate the complex. And you can easily create an imbalance as bad as the one you're trying to medicate by bringing in isolates like that because the body has not got the, you know, it can't figure out how to use all these watch parts. It's kind of like if you take a thousand sweep hands and eat it, it doesn't help the rest of the watch. If you want a thousand watches, you need to eat a thousand watches. So the, the real outcome here is that there's a lot of very big misunderstandings in, in nutrition in general and the soil and food and chemicals. And there are many things that you can do. And I'm not against isolated nutrition, but I think nutritional isolates have to be used, shall we say, with the precision and consciousness that a doctor would prescribe a drug because they do have drug-like effects on the body and they can alter metabolic pathways and change things. But when you eat, for example, a, a whole food organic vitamin, the whole complex system is all intact. For example, acerola cherry or um, uh, any of the uh, algaes and all the things that are uh, examples of whole food vitamins that are produced out there contain these complexes. So you have a wide variety of nutrition all in its natural state. They're usually just compressed into a pill. So it's just like eating concentrated food, but it's actually not synthesized. Or the, In other words, the nutrition complex is not broken up. So, you know, those are some key points I wanted to make in regard to the soil, soil mechanics. And then there's the issues of animal traffic, bird traffic, um, and the importance of a wide variety of, of uh, fertilizers because they all have different effects on the soil and different nutrients. Just like we need to eat a wide diet, microorganisms need a wide amount of animal traffic and bird traffic to feed themselves because the poop of those animals is their food. And you know people don't realize that plants don't eat poop any more than you wanna eat poop. It's the soil microorganisms that digest that stuff, metabolize it, and then convert it into nutrition, which they feed to the plants after it goes through a conversion process in the soil microorganisms. So I'll stop rambling because maybe that's given you enough to want to ask more questions. Oh my gosh, my mind is just like exploding. I do want to dive into breathing a little bit. And the reason why I want to do that is because uh, probably over the last eight months, I've been really putting a lot of effort and energy into meditation. I just recently took my family to India to go experience that sort of firsthand at a very special location up in the mountains. And, you know, as a, as a former athlete, having used breathing to calm down or to psych up, and then, you know, more recently helping a lot of business people and students to, you know, control their anxiety levels and stress levels using breathing or, or to ramp themselves up if they need to. Uh, I'm super interested in in your thoughts on breathing. I, I've never heard of holotrophic breathing. I'd love you to expand upon that a little bit and and the power of using breathing to you know work out better or just to live a better life. Anything that you have on that would be super fascinating. Okay, well, that's a very big subject. Um, I'll share some things that just come to mind. If you look up the name Stanislav Grof, G-R-O-F-F, -F, I believe, he was 
one of the original pioneers of LSD research. He's a psychiatrist from, I think, the Czech Republic, if I remember right. And, he, and he's a very respected scientist and, and a psychiatrist, medical doctor. But when they started taking away access to LSD, and he, after doing extensive research and testing on himself with LSD, I can't remember this story, but something triggered him to explore breathing and various breathing practices. So he did a lot of research and he developed methods by which you can actually induce pretty much the same state you get from LSD um, by breathing. So you can look up holotrophic breathing and there's a variety of different techniques. Like it's a whole kind of a system, not just one breathing technique. Some of my students have studied it. I haven't gone, I've read his books and his research about it, but I haven't actually studied or applied holotrophic uh, breathing myself. Um, I have done a couple of the practices with some of my students that have done it and it all makes sense to me. Um, what about breathing for like working out, breathing out for life experience? Like uh, I love that idea of oxygen being powerful. Like just uh, how would you use and, and leverage positive breathing for exercise, for example? Well, I think the, there's a few key things here. The first and most important thing that I would point out is that very few people have a normal breathing pattern. And when you inhale, you're bringing in oxygen, which stimulates the sympathetic system. But the oxygen through metabolism converts to CO2, which stimulates the parasympathetic or the digest, repair and eliminate system. So if a person does not have a normal breathing pattern, which is a common reaction to physical and emotional stress or mental stress, they're typically their breathing rate speeds up. A healthy person's breathing rate, in my experience of measuring thousands of people, even though most physiology texts will tell you something like 16 or 17 breaths a minute is normal, I find somewhere between uh, six and 10 breaths a minute to be normal. And that's important because the average person, the normal rate of peristalsis is a wave of peristalsis about every six to 10 seconds. So when you look at the concept of biological oscillators, the guts, the solar plexus, and all the organs it controls, the heart and the brain are the three key biological oscillators identified by research at the HeartMath Institute. And they showed through extensive studies that when a person's in a relaxed or integrated state, the rhythms of the heart are the dominant. The heart produces an electromagnetic field about 5,000 times stronger than the brain. And the brain's field is stronger than the gut. But those three consciousness centers, when they're in harmony, which is largely done through breathing and movement, which is why I developed my entire system of working in, to show people how to use these breathing and movement techniques to cultivate life force energy. And for me and my system, a work in exercise, which can be just breathing or other things, is an exercise that produces more life force energy than the exercise costs to do. Working out means you're using more energy per unit time, unit of time than the exercise itself gives back to the body. So you're going into an energy or resource deficit. That's why it's called working out. And that's sympathetically driven. So when you're working out, you're, you're, the whole system's driven by the sympathetic system. When you're working in, you're activating, nourishing, and exciting the parasympathetic system. 
which is the repair, rebuild, uh, recovery aspects of our body that are so, you know, shall we say, suppressed by modern <laughs> chemistry and psychology and everything else. So the, the uh, point that I'm making is most people have a chest breather's pattern and they breathe too fast. I've, you know, countless, countless people with respiratory rates 20, 23, 24, which is hyperventilation, which means that you're outgassing too much CO2. So the sympathetic system becomes overly stimulated and the parasympathetic system gets relatively shut down. So those people I have to work on teaching them how to breathe diaphragmatically. So the first two thirds of the breath should always come from expansion of the belly, which is called a diaphragmatic breath. And only the last one third should come through expansion of the chest. Most people have that completely upside down. The other problem is that all this heavy, heavy focus on abdominal conditioning and sit-ups like crazy and crunches like crazy and everyone trying to walk around with a six-pack and flexing their abs all the time completely not only screws up the breathing mechanism, but stops the diaphragm from being able to drop down because as the diaphragm drops down, if the abdominal wall cannot expand, then the organs have nowhere to go. And if you've got all that tension in your abdominals as your diaphragm tries to come down, if it cannot effectively move the organs out of the way, then the brain has to recruit the scalene muscles, the levator scapula, the upper tre trapezius or accessory respiratory muscles, which leads to a huge amount of tension in the neck, which usually leads to trigger points and pain, which then overexcites the sympathetic system. So it creates a self-defeating loop. So by getting the abdominal wall to expand, which for many people requires regular stretching and mobilizing on a foam roller or seeing a, a, an effective therapist to loosen the fascia and the muscles and not conditioning it incorrectly. I rarely ever use isolation exercise unless it's purely corrective. Um, once you get the abdominal wall to expand properly and a person learns to take a full breath, and I teach them, for example, if you want to calm someone's central nervous system down or take them into a, a more of a parasympathetic state, you're going to increase the time it takes to do the out breath. So you might breathe in one, two, three, but as a calming technique, you would breathe out one, two, three, four, five, six. And that allows the CO2 to stay in the body longer. But if you're hyperventilating, you're outgassing that CO2 too quick. So it throws the whole system into a sympathetic alert and, and it triggers a fight or flight reaction. And for many people, that's 24 hours a day, which is why they have chronic health problems, can't recover from all sorts of stuff because they're just their whole electromagnetics are just shot. They're, they're like the soil, <laughs> which has got commercial soil. It's got only diamagnetic energy, no paramagnetic energy. So the battery goes flat. Um, so there's that, but then the other issue is I teach people how to time their breathing and their movement. The entire field of exercise is extremely confused. I've never seen a single strength coach certification or personal trainer certification in the world. And I've looked at more than most people on the planet that teaches people how to breathe and move correctly. And if you study the science of respiration, the respiratory centers in the brain actually are the chief controllers of the entire musculoskeletal system because breathing is the most critical function. We breathe 25,900 times a day on average. And without breathing, you got about three minutes before your brain will go into 
serious problems and by five minutes your brain's on its way to dying. So the entire respiratory system actually is the chief of controlling the muscular system because it is the respiratory muscles that have to create the pressure fluctuations to allow breathing to happen. The point being is that breathing, the impetus to breathe has a pre-facilitation effect on all the muscles. So if you just remember the basic rule that if you started in the fetal position, curled up like a fetus, as you inhale, the body goes into extension, abduction, the arms come away from the midline, and supination, you can turn your arms over so you can hold a cup of soup or turn your feet and legs outward, like someone in a fro open frog type position. And then when you exhale, the whole body is like a flower now closing and it goes progressively toward the fetal position. So said another way, inhalation is coupled with extension and supination and exhalation is coupled with flexion and pronation. So for example, when you throw a ball, if you try to throw the ball while you're breathing in, you will find it very hard to throw the ball very far at all because when you're breathing in, you're firing the extensor mechanism, but throwing is an act of explosive flexion and rotation. So you can easily prove to athletes, which I do all the time, I say, here, I give them a five pound medicine ball. And I say, now, don't think about it, throw this ball as far as you can. And I measure it off or I just leave it out there and get them another five pound ball. And I say, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to exhale first. And then as you're throwing the ball, try to take a deep breath and then it'll cut the distance of the throw down usually by 30 to 50%. And it freaks them out because they explain that it feels like someone just shut the power down. But you walk into gyms all over the world and you watch athletes training and you see people breathing completely backwards. And Many of them are taught to do this in gym classes by personal trainers. And so I did a whole program called The Science of Breathing and Movement. I have a two-day workshop by that topic. And there's a DVD uh, called Heavy Breathing that's uh, a film of one of my uh, instructors giving a lecture that I developed at the IDEA conference called Heavy Breathing. And it shows you the mechanics of the body and how it works with breathing. So the point I'm getting to is when you're doing basic things, like I teach my work in exercises in my book, how to, uh, they're called zone exercises in the book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. I show you how to couple movement of the body with breathing so that the movement sequence and the breathing sequence match. And by using slow rhythmic breathing and moving, we pump the abdominal organs with pressure fluctuations. We harmonize our breathing cycle which correlates to calming the heart down and brings the mind down. And within as little as 10 to 20 minutes, you can take a person who's like got ADD type behavior scattered, someone who's got anxiety, someone who's um, anxious or nervous, someone who feels mentally, emotionally scattered, people that have digestive eliminative troubles and all sorts of stuff. And all of a sudden the three systems are online so it's like the first time their body has been working properly as an integrated holistic system where all these systems can effectively talk to each other and they have quite powerful <laughs> experiences. Uh, they can be deep spiritual experiences. They can have out-of-body experiences. They can have uh, a huge amount of emotion come running through them that's all been trapped in their body. I've seen people literally have 
purges of tears that go on for half an hour because stuff that they've buried into them, like the death of a family member or whatever for years, is finally now able to come to the surface because the system's integrated enough to be able to process or even digest it. And we got to remember, we have to digest emotions. We have to digest thoughts. But if our body, mind, and soul are not integrated, we can't have an effective process of digestion because in order to digest something like that, we have to have our gut instincts intact and our gut feelings intact. We have to be able to feel through our heart so that we can actually look through the eyes of love. But we also need our rational faculty, which I'm correlating to the brain, or we're, we're kind of always somewhat blind and can actually fall in love with our own beliefs without realizing that, you know, you're out of balance. And as the aboriginals say, if a man's mind and body is not in the same place, he is crooked. And that's their simple way of saying that if you're out of balance, everything about you is out of balance and the way you see yourself in the world will reflect that. So without, you know, going too crazy, those are some of my concepts of breathing that I work with. That's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, I love that idea of sort of opening the body up as you inhale and then closing the body up as you exhale. And the analogy to a flower is super cool. I was actually using that to that same analogy to describe sleep, how during the day we need to sort of open up and be aware of light. And then at night we, we close things down and, and, and just exactly like a flower or, or as a plant. But you talked in that last segment about getting to some of the root causes of, uh, of pain, of discomfort, of, of blockages, of aches and pains. And I know that you've just developed a new course on that. I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit about your experiences and that whole mind, body, spirit, emotion, connection piece. And I, I know that, uh, you know, we had an hour booked and we're, we're coming up on that. So I'm sensitive to your time, but as much as you feel like we can dive into that, I'd love to hear about the latest thinking that you have in that area. Well, I developed my Czech four quadrant coaching mastery program. Um, it's called four quadrant because I basically built it on Ken Wilber's four concept, uh, four quadrant concept. So uh, I also, I'll give you a, an explanation of the four quadrants, uh, and I'm going to write a little note so I don't forget, but I want to point out that I've been doing this work for 32 years right now. I started when I was, I don't know, I'm 55, and I started when I was 22, I think. I became the trainer of the Army Boxing when I was 22. So I've not only worked with the best athletes in the world and consulted numerous professional sports teams in many different sports. I've worked with many different Olympic committees. Um, and I've worked with people with every kind of problem you can think of from uh, many different types of diseases to cancer, to uh, chronic fatigue, to uh, depression, uh, psychological challenges like OCD, um, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, uh, you know, people come to me when nobody knows what to do with them. So I've had a lot of time to look at all these things and I've worked with thousands of students and spent a lot of time looking at people's lives, looking at my own life challenges and working on solving them, honestly. And I found after years and years and years that the driving, whenever we're working with someone that has any kind of a challenge, be it a, be it a health problem or a relationship problem or a self-identity problem or basically anything that a person would come to a doctor or therapist for, 
we're dealing with at the core root a person who's been acting in ways that have produced results that they don't want. So, for example, I define an addiction as any repeated behavior that does not produce the results you want. Now, so what I actually found in my own career, and I had a very good opportunity to study this because the people that were coming to me had seen many chiropractors, many orthopedic surgeons, many neurologists, many nutritionists, and often had files, you know, sometimes I had to get, I had to have files sent to me, I'd get two, three medical charts that were two inches thick. It would take me a week just to read through all the stuff they'd done, tests they've had, doctors they'd seen, and you'd see complete inconsistency in, in the diagnostics of this. One doctor said they had this, and 10 minutes later, another doctor gave them a completely different diagnosis, and that is consistent across the board, even to this moment uh, throughout our, our culture. And so I got down to really looking at what is the common denominator that leads people to having these problems. For example, many people know that white sugar is bad for you, it rots your teeth and does all sorts of other stuff, but can not only continue to eat it regularly and go to the dentist and get told your teeth are rotting, you shouldn't be eating all this crap or whatever, maybe the dentist doesn't tell them, but it's kind of common knowledge, they keep feeding it to their kids. Then you coach someone like that. Maybe they're gluten intolerant. And you explain to them very clearly, this is what's causing inflammation in your gut, giving you leaky gut syndrome. That's why you got a parasite infection. That's why you got a fungal infection. That's why you now have 28 food intolerances. And then they go home and they keep eating the same crap. And you come back and you say, well, how does it go getting the gluten out of your diet? And they said, oh, well, you know, I've tried, but I really just need my cereal or I need my cookie uh, or whatever it is. And so what you see at the end of the day, Greg, is that it all boils down to what are the behaviors causing the problems and behind every behavior is a belief that is driving it. And if that belief is an unconscious belief, such as I'm lonely in my relationship I don't feel fulfilled, fulfilled in my relationship, but I feel fulfilled when I'm eating chocolate cake or drinking beer because somehow that's connected through a psychological association to times in my life where I was having a good time or joyful times. Then when you're asking someone to take that gluten or that sugar out of their diet, you're asking them to take the safest lover they have out of their diet because cookies cakes and bottles of beer don't complain about whether or not you're loving them well, whether or not you're coming home on time, whether or not you brought flowers. And then when you go to the beliefs, now this might get a little heavy for some of your people, but when you go to the beliefs and study thousands of people like I have, what do you find? You find religion sitting there. It's because God's going to burn me in hell and I've got all this insecurity about the things I've done. So I never feel I can rest inside myself or God wants you to eat only certain foods. And so you have some people like Seventh-day Adventists that believe you should never eat meat. So they come to me with complete hormonal imbalances and all sorts of problems because they're severely protein deficient. Or 
uh, I had a professional skateboarder who was world famous for a while and was at the peak of his career, but he tore out his ACL on one leg and his PCL on another. He was a Rastafarian, which is a vegetarian, and he refused to do any kind of protein supplementation. I started, I tried him with plant-based support. I tried to work within his philosophy, but he was too depleted. And so he wouldn't even do eggs. He wouldn't even do dairy. I mean, this guy was so locked into this uh, Rastafarian belief system. So what do you see? His choices and his actions that produced the results that he was getting were the result of a belief system that was somehow tied to a belief in what God wanted. Well, you know, I won't go into the whole issue, but as I often tell these people, listen, if you understand what the word God means, it means all. It, it, God means omni, all. There is no God but God. There is nothing but God. If God was cookie dough, then everything in the universe would be some variation of cookie dough. And God doesn't want anything because God has everything. God is you. God is me. God is the earth, the sun, the sky. So what I have to do, and this goes into what Carl Jung called the Imago Dei, image of deity, which is the first archetype of all archetypes through which we perceive ourselves in the world, because it is related to the process of imaging, which research shows in a human being occurs much, much before language does. The child can see before it can express in words what it's seeing or perceiving. And so the imago Dei means the image of deity. So whatever we're programmed through our family upbringing to believe God is or God wants actually becomes the root basis of all the beliefs and behaviors that we end up acting out for better or for worse. So the four quadrant program looks at the human being and life itself from four unique perspectives. So if you just draw a big cross on a piece of paper, the upper left quadrant is often referred to as the quadrant of the soul, which means the consciousness within the individual that's called the, uh, the personal interior. So that's everything about you that cannot be weighed or measured, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your fantasies, your desires, your spiritual aspirations, anything that makes you you that cannot be weighed or measured. The upper right quadrant is called the personal exterior. That's anything that can be weighed, measured, or evaluated scientifically, whether it be on a functional MRI, whether it be photon emission, whether it be uh, biochemistry analysis, whether it be structural analysis. So our culture is very in love with the upper right quadrant and actually tries to address all problems at large through the upper right quadrant, through some injection, through some pill, through some manipulation. But they don't realize that the upper right quadrant is the quadrant that approaches the results of the choices made by the internal process of the upper left quadrant personal interior, which is where your beliefs and your values live. The lower left quadrant is the collective interior. So that's the collective of a family, a family's beliefs or a tribe's beliefs or the beliefs of any group of people or a church, for example. So whoever you're interacting with in your social circles, whether it be religious, whether it be exercise or professional, goes into the lower left collective interior. 
And that's where we deal with our mythology or the mythology that we participate in, whether whatever your myth or your life story is. The lower right is the collective exterior, and that's what I call the stage. So everything that we do, like right now I'm standing in my office on top of a mountain looking out the window talking to you on Skype. And so any system that directs energy or anything that we can act out the play of life is considered the lower right quadrant. So this is where you get into environmental issues such as environmental toxicity, uh, chemicals in buildings, ergonomics, uh, anything to do with the external environment from the fit of tools to the way cars fit to systems that control the flow of energy such as computers, the internet, electrical systems, plumbing systems, uh, buildings, roads, road systems, air travel, all of that's the lower right quadrant. So what I did was I built the four quadrant system to integrate all my teachings about the body, the emotions, the mind, diet, lifestyle, physical assessment, structural adjustments, corrective exercise, performance exercise, spiritual development, all of it to fit so that a person could look at anybody that comes to them and understand how to analyze the individual from the upper left personal interior or the quadrant of the soul, the collective consciousness. Now, the upper left, by the way, is the home of your archetypes. So archetypes are original ideas. For example, all trees are expression of the tree archetype, whether it's a hat tree, a diagram, a computer diagram showing the wiring of a, an electrical system in a tree diagram, or an actual tree, those are expressions of the tree archetype. Um, so archetypes meaning in Plato's philosophy was original idea, and all of us act out archetypes. For example, the Imago Dei is, is the first archetype. The father and the mother are the second archetype. There's nobody here on this planet that didn't come by way of a father or a mother. And there's no one here that doesn't have a lot in their psyche about this directly related to their experiences with a father or a mother. So there's just a simple example. I could give you lots more, but for time reasons, I'll save it. But we're all acting out archetypal influences. And our, in my system, the archetype relates to what your dream is. Whenever you have a dream or a desire to do something, that's important to me because once I identify what it is that your, your dream is, I can customize your coaching and your therapy and the everything from the diet I give you to the exercises I give you to the whole way that I coach you so that it's all oriented towards clearly supporting you in achieving that dream. So if your dream, uh, for example, is to be a, a effective as an athlete, that would be the athlete archetype. All athletes fall into the athlete archetype. So I show you what the imbalances are commonly found in the athlete archetype. For example, the overtraining athlete is one polarity, and the lazy athlete, the undertraining athlete, is the opposite polarity, just like you have an overloving mother and an underloving mother, which are polarities of an archetype. And my goal is to teach you how to find the middle between those polarities, because either side of that archetypal equation leads to trouble. Uh, too much of the archetype leads to archetypal possession. So someone becomes so invested in being an athlete that they ignore their responsibilities to their family, 
their friends. They may even start doing things at work, such as taking longer lunch hours to swim and bike longer and trying to get away from uh, get away with it. Uh, and, and so whatever happens is they whenever you're out of balance with an archetype, it leads to trouble. But if you're overly invested in an archetype, you have an archetypal possession and that leads to trouble in your life. And many, many people that come to me have archetypal possession, um, which means they're aligned with the unconscious forces of creativity in the universe to the point that they lose their sense of individual awareness about how to manage themselves so that they can get the best of the influence of the, shall we say, desire of the athlete, but the best in their importance of knowing that each of us has multiple archetypes, such as if you're a husband, then you have to act out the father archetype with equal, if not greater, awareness than the athlete archetype, because who cares if you win the gold medal, if you ruin your family and end up divorced, with your gold medal, then you really are confused and it makes the world think you're Mr. Great, but they don't realize that you've just traumatized yourself and many other people to try to get that little piece of gold, which isn't really a very wise thing to do at the end of the day. So the goal of the Check Four Quadrant program, which we're, we have as an online course and we're just loading it up now, any day now it'll go live, is to learn that in the upper left quadrant, the personal interior, we're dealing with largely what drives a person, what is pulling a person to become more, to grow physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And often it requires that we help them identify that because people are often confused or they can't figure out what they want to do or they want to do too many things at once. And that's and they can't keep enough energy in the system to be five archetypes at once. Then we have to look at the beliefs of the people around them. And are they congruent with their dream? And we have to look at sort of say family dynamics, team dynamics, uh, social dynamics, and deal with challenges where there's belief challenges. For example, a lot of people's beliefs go countercurrent to what their parents want them to do. So it sets up tension in the left side of that cross, the dynamics between the personal interior and the collective interior of mom and dad and family. The upper right relates to your body. So we, what, what I've shown clearly thousands of times when people come to me that can't get help from the doctors is because the doctors are treating the symptoms in the upper right of the conflict on the upper left. And now we have a whole science called biosocial, biopsychosocial medicine that's doing nothing but proving everything that I've been doing for years and teaching. And then you have psychoneuroimmunology, which is called psycho, which means soul, neuro, nervous system, immunology, immune system, and thousands of research studies showing the interrelationships between the soul or this inner, the upper left quadrant, the inner self, the nervous system the, that carries those feelings, thoughts, and emotions out, and the immune system, how it responds to the stress or harmony created by the inner self. And we got the issues of the lower right where we have to deal with the real challenges today. I mean, a building full of lead paint or asbestos or a, a carpet that outgasses 131 carcinogenic chemicals a year for the first year it's on the ground or a new car that has 68,000 chemicals, all of which can be potentially harmful to a body or a woman that works in a nail salon who's breathing toxins all day or a fireman who's running into building 
that's burning and releasing chemicals galore and firemen have a very high rate of cancer from all that chemical exposure. So what I'm trying to point out, and I hope it's clear by now, is that you cannot do effective coaching or therapy if you miss any one of those quadrants. And But it takes a fair bit of knowledge and someone with the kind of experience that I have to teach a person how to analyze those quadrants and what to do about it efficiently and effectively because there is no fast food approach to educating someone at this level. And that's one of the reasons there's such a problem in our culture of well-grounded doctors and therapists because they get too deeply rooted in just one corner or one quadrant and get myopic. Paul, we could keep going for hours and hours and hours. I didn't even get into your four-step process around dreams or the four doctors living philosophy that I wanted to get into. So if it's all right with you, we may have to do a part two to this. And I I am sensitive to your time. So I want to thank you so much for going so deep into some of these topics. And I know that we're, even though I feel like we went really deep, uh, I know we're just scratching the surface of your knowledge, but if people wanted to learn more about you, your courses, engage with you online, where can they go to get more info? Well, there's a, a couple of places and, and uh, while it's on my mind, I'll just re- uh, let you know that my, my ebook, uh, the last four doctors you'll ever need how to get healthy now deals with the, issue of one might might just to give you a quick simple overview since you mentioned it one two three four is the format that i developed one what is your dream what do you love enough to change for two stands for tai chi everything in the created universe is made out of the two forces of yin the female and yang the male that represents balance so once i know what your dream is and i assess you i need to know where you're out of balance Three, there's only three choices you can make in relationship to any person, place, or thing. The optimal, which is the one best for you and everybody on your dream team. The suboptimal, the one that usually gives you instant gratification but causes problems somewhere on your dream team. Or do nothing, which has a positive, which is um, don't do anything until you have enough information to make an intelligent decision. And a negative which is apathetic, means I don't care. So you're just disengaging from your life and the lives of others. So that's a very negative approach. And the other action of do nothing is calling a timeout. If a relationship or argument is occurring and it's getting to the point where you can't be productive, then you call a timeout and just ask to be disengaged until you can contribute to the discussion meaningfully. So there's three choices you can make in relationship to any person, place, or thing. That's why it's number three. Four is your four doctors, Dr. Happiness, Dr. Diet, Dr. Quiet, and Dr. Movement, which are the essential categories of any living philosophy. If you don't have a clear definition of what happiness is for you, you'll never be able to create it. If you don't have a solid understanding of what you need to keep your own body healthy as far as diet goes, you'll never be healthy. You'll always have problems. Dr. Movement, if you don't have awareness of how much movement you need to keep your body healthy and create your unique dream, then it's not going to happen effectively. And quiet, if you don't know how much rest you need or have knowledge of the science of rest and what types of rest there are and how to use them effectively, you'll burn yourself out. So my one, two, three, four uh, formula is in my HLC one training program, which is also available online, Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level One, which takes you through my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and teaches you that and more in a series of digestible lessons. 
Um, those are all available at C-H-E- www.chekinstitute.com. Um, then you have um, my blog, which is www.paulchekes blog, Paul Check's blog. And that is my monthly. I mean, I give, I do a little something every week. We have a beautiful blog on the Czech Institute website. Um, and I have over 500 videos on YouTube. So if you go to uh, youtube.com forward slash Paul Czech live, all stuck together, like a URL address, P-A-U-L-C-H-E-K-L-I-V-E, you'll see my YouTube channel, which is really stuff like this that I've put out. And you might even be able to find Nutrition the Dirt Facts on there. Appreciate it. Paul, thank you so much for your time. This has been epic. I hope that we can do a part two because I want to go deeper. But I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure everyone's going to dive deep into all those online resources. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed that very in-depth conversation with Paul. He's just an incredible human being and uh, is just really into sharing his wisdom now at this phase of his life. So very honored to have had him on the show and to have had that conversation. Thanks to my buddy Reza Neam for setting that up. Uh, Reza and Paul are very good friends and have been working together for many, many years. So honored to have uh, been able to leverage that connection into getting a chance to actually talk to Paul directly for an hour and a bit. If you enjoyed the show, that episode, please give us a review on iTunes, positive or negative, that all helps out, believe it or not, although positive is definitely better. If you want to subscribe, that would be fantastic. And of course, as usual, if you enjoyed the show and you want to learn more, follow me on social. They are all at Dr. Greg Wells. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening in. Hope that was helpful. And we'll talk to you again really, really soon.